0: If you would open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, I'm going to read the passage we read last week and hopefully get a little further in it this week as we handle Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to the end of verse 24. And it's a section of scripture that's dealing with, with money. It's dealing with money, and more importantly, it's dealing with God. Because, of course, the Bible only speaks about these issues that face us in our everyday lives, like marriage or children or singleness or money or work, as it helps us understand them in light of God, as it helps us understand them as opportunities to be faithful to God and to fellowship with God. And so, let me read to you from Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, as the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to us about God and money. The Lord Jesus Christ says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is God's word. Father, we ask you that you would come now and allow my preaching not to be the words of men, but to be the words of God as it really is, and that you would allow me to only say what's consistent with your scriptures and that your people would hear your voice and be transformed. And we pray that the way we would use our money would become a source of joy for us, not only in this life, but in the age to come. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In, 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, chapter one, verse 24, The Apostle Paul describes his service in a way that I find really wonderful and honestly a bit breathtaking. He describes the work of a Christian teacher, and that's what he was, as like this. He says, we work with you for your joy. We work with you for your joy. He sees himself, and I hope I see myself, as working cooperatively with his brothers and sisters to increase their joy in this life and in the next. And each time I preach a sermon, and each time we listen to a sermon, and then the body of Christ discusses a sermon, we are part of that cooperative process where we're working together, seeking the next steps in the path towards earthly and eternal joy together. So this morning, as I speak to you, the, the people I love, this seems especially relevant. My goal is to explain and apply Jesus' words about money. And my goal is not to make you feel guilty about money. It's not, certainly not to pad my own pockets. My goal is to work out with you our best next steps towards joy. In this passage, we're gonna see that there are ways we can handle money and ways we can think about money that will do our souls harm in this life and in the next. And there are also ways to think about money and handle money that will do our souls good in this life and in the next. Just a quick glance at the passage we just read, we'll go into it a little deeper, but just a quick glance at the passage we read and we see that to think about money wrongly can lead to devalued or stolen investments, great spiritual darkness, and even betrayal of God and hatred of God in people who at one time called themselves Christians. Every believer wants to avoid loss, darkness, and hatred of God. There's no joy in us for us in that. On the other hand, this passage speaks of eternal treasures, walking in the light, and a single-minded love and devotion to God. Every believer wants that. Even at their worst moments, we wish, that's where, we're, where we were, And here is Jesus unfolding the place our attitude and our actions towards money might take in leading us towards that kind of joy. So the move towards joy that I believe Jesus gives us here is is led, led through three different things we see in this passage. A clear command, a good eye, and one master. If you want to pursue joy through money, what's required is a clear command, a good eye, and one master. I wanna begin by looking at the clear command. We actually spent the whole sermon on this last week, but I don't wanna go forward without reviewing it one more time because I think if we're not crystal clear about what exactly Jesus is commanding when it comes to money, we'll go astray. There's all kinds of things that people think the Bible says about money that it actually doesn't say at all. And we need, to be ex- we need to be precise in understanding exactly what Jesus is saying to us when it comes to money. It's easy to read Matthew 6, 19 through 21 and think the Bible has a negative view of money and a negative view of self-interest. Both of those ideas are dead wrong the Bible does not have a negative view of money. Turn to your neighbor and say, the Bible does not have a negative view of money. Okay, now that we got that cleared up, often people will quote 1 Timothy 6.10, money is the root of all evil, which of course the Bible does not say. I should have said they will misquote 1 Timothy 6.10, which actually says the love of money is the root of all evil. Loving money more than God and your neighbor will rot your soul. But money, we shall see, can be used for tremendous good. It's like nuclear energy. It can be used for bad things, but it can be used for tremendous good as well. The other thing people think when they read the Bible is that the Bible is against self-interest. That if you've got any self-interest, you're being unbiblical. Nothing could be further from the truth. Every page of the Bible assumes self-interest. The Bible is always appealing to you to do what would be actually best for your own self-interest. This is why Jesus is always coming to us, offering things like rest, satisfaction, life, forgiveness, and treasures in heaven forever. What's he appealing to you? He's appealing to your self-interest. And he assumes that at the core of your own being, you actually want what's good for yourself. The Bible is not against self-interest, it's against people satisfying their self-interest with sin. The Bible is against the way we pursue our self-interest, not self-interest itself. The Bible is against us glutting our self-interest on rebellion against God with treasures that will not last. Now notice what I'm saying, it really comes from the text. Jesus is not against money, do you see that? He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, if you just read that, you might think he's against treasures, he's against money, he's against gold, he's against silver, he's against stuff, he's against material things. If you just read that, you might think that. But then you get to the very next verse, right after he's told you not to lay up treasures for yourself on earth, and what he says, but do lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. So the problem is not treasures. Gold was God's idea, silver is God's invention. Cold hard cash and private property are the, come from the mind of the divine. They're God's idea, he thinks they're wise. It's Jesus' idea to pave the central street in the New Jerusalem with gold. So any sort of latent idea that stuff is bad and that stuff has spiritual cooties is actually dead wrong and unbiblical. Jesus is not speaking against treasures at all. Nor is he speaking about self-interest. Now last week after my sermon, uh, Christy King, uh, Pastor Jeff's beloved wife, came up to me and she said, Ryan, I, you know, I love your preaching. And I love it. And, and she said, but you just you kept misquoting this verse the whole sermon. And, and, and you, you kept leaving out, don't lay up for your treasures for yourselves, for yourselves. And I thought, was I, was I misquoting it every time? She's like, yeah, you, you never said those words. And so that was bad. So, uh, and, and I, I thanked her because the slippery slope starts two words at a time. And, and so, so I wanna get back on the straight and narrow and and emphasize that Jesus is not saying the main problem is that you want to lay up treasures for yourselves. You might read that first verse and go, oh, the problem is selfishness. Do not lay up treasures for yourselves. Don't do that, that's being selfish. Except that the very next verse tells you to lay up treasures for yourselves. So it's actually exhorting you towards self-interest. Do you see that? It says that right in the passage. It says in verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Thank you for making sure I noticed that. And so what's going on here? What's going on here is that the treasures are not the problem Jesus is dealing with. We've got college students all over this world being taught in their classrooms that treasures and capital and the capitalism that might get you more of those kinds of treasures is innately problematic. Not so. Treasures are not inherently evil. Is that clear? Just for the record, you didn't make any of the treasures on the planet. God did. And when he made them, he said that they were very good. And they are, even in a fallen world. So the problem is not treasures. Neither is the problem self interest. Self interest is not the problem. The problem is this the problem that Jesus is dealing with is that we want money, prosperity, and pleasure and ease here more than we want treasures and pleasures and rest with God in heaven that's the problem it's a where problem and it's a who problem where do you want your treasures do you want them in this life now and who do you want to be your highest treasure do you want it to be God giving you treasures or do you want it to be just yourself in this world hoarding the good things of this life divorced from any kinds of enjoyment with God you've got to get the problem right. Jesus is saying, if your heart is set on earth, then when your treasures are going to be destroyed or dislodged from your possession, your heart is gonna break. Because you're gonna lose what you value most. But if your treasures are in heaven, where they are protected and they're enjoyed in the presence of God, then you will have joy. A passage like this is introducing us to what preacher John Piper calls Christian hedonism. Now regular old hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure, sex, drugs, rock and roll, or even being the most awesome and moral you can be. Hedonism is about seeking as much pleasure as you can in this life. Christian hedonism, as Piper describes it, is a reminder that Jesus actually wants us pursuing pleasures but pleasures that last, pleasures that actually satisfy the soul. Jesus' problem is not that you have self-interest, it's that you're stupid when it comes to what you're interested in, and that I'm stupid. It's that what we think will satisfy is actually gonna get washed away at the very latest the minute we die. Jesus' problem is not the self-interest. It's that we actually don't know what will make us happy. It's that we actually haven't found the right kind of hedonism, the right kinds of pleasures. He wants us laser focused on the things that will make for not 20 years of retirement joy, but 200 billion eternal eras of eternal joy. That's what he wants for your soul. That's what he wants for your soul. And sin is that we would pursue such little things when He's offering such great things. If we follow Jesus and focus on accumulating treasures, we can have eternal joy. If you focus on treasures and pleasures in this life, then you can eat and you can drink and you can be merry, but tomorrow you die. If we follow Jesus and a focus on accumulating treasures in heaven, then we can die and go to heaven and eat and drink and be merry with Jesus and never die. That's the right kind of hedonism. And that is what Jesus is calling us to. That's how we are working together for one another's joy. Another way of putting the concern of this passage is like this. The central problem the Bible sees with us is that people worship and serve the created things rather than the creator. We like the stuff he made more than we like him. We are like a wife who likes her engagement ring more than she likes her husband. We are like children who like their Christmas gifts but want to ignore grandma and grandpa who bought them. We like the created stuff God made, we love those treasures on earth, but we are bored to tears with the one who made silver and gold and put them in the hills. Jesus is calling us out of that wickedness. But he's calling us, listen to this, he's calling us to express our self-interest and our enjoyment of stuff in a way that puts him first in our hearts. That's what's going on here. The whole passage is not just about getting you to funnel a few dollars towards the church or something like that, although that will see the clear implications of that. The whole passage is about a complete reorientation of the heart away from just loving created stuff and towards loving the creator who makes all the stuff. We are being called to live by faith in a way that makes Jesus the focus of our hearts We are to use money and all of our treasures to build his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And if we do, we will be rewarded with treasures in heaven. We still get the treasures he made because those are good once we get to heaven. Our self-interest will be rewarded because that's good too, but we will primarily be rewarded in heaven with treasures that will not distract us from him, but will move us to praise him all the more. Now these kinds of commands are all over the Bible beloved. These kinds of commands to give your resources and your money and your treasures, these kinds of commands that call you to give so that you will increase your joy in heaven are all over the Bible. We are not dealing with an isolated oddball text. We are dealing with a main highway of Jesus' teaching In the scriptures, Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Fear not, little flock. This is Jesus speaking. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Saw the same idea in a passage we read last week. 1 Timothy six seventeen. As for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. Or another example of this principle. Let the thief no longer steal. This is Ephesians chapter five. But let him do honest work with your own hands so that he has something to give. Do you see that? Sell something so you can give. If you're wealthy, give. If you're used to be a thief, get a job and make some money so you can give. The whole idea is if you've got treasures, sell some of them to give. If you've got excess, give out of that excess to give. If you don't have any money and you're used to stealing other people's money, make money so you can give. There's this holy industry so that we can be laying up treasures not on earth but in heaven. As a congregation, we want to work together to promote such a culture of sacrificial generosity that we will be abounding in eternal treasures in heaven. We want to walk past each other in heaven on streets paid with gold, loaded with riches that make us glorify Jesus, all the more going, are you not glad we made those investments? We want to pursue joy by obeying Christ's clear command. Now, this brings me to the second point we need to look at. We need to make here's the second point we need to look at. In order to obey Christ's command to lay up treasures in heaven, we need a good eye. We need a good eye. I played a lot of baseball growing up, and so you hear the crowds when you're when you're not swinging at the balls and you are stinging at the strikes, good eye, good eye, good eye, right? And a good eye, of course, is an eye that notices what's going on, that is clued into and aware of reality. So I want you to notice the sort of the structure of the passage. In verses 17, sorry, in verses 19, through 21, Jesus speaks clearly about treasures in heaven. Then, if you flip down to verse 24, he makes it clear you can't serve God and money. So he's talking about treasure, he's talking about money, and then right between those two sections, you got a little passage about your eye. What's going on here? The idea here, he's not on a different topic. He's saying you need a good eye if you're gonna think about money rightly. You need good discernment if you're gonna think about money rightly. And he uses a metaphor that's a little curious, but if you think about it for a bit, it becomes real clear. Notice what he says, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So the way you get light into a body is through the eye. Now this doesn't mean that Jesus is some pre-scientific nincompoop who thought that the eye was shining light down on your spleen and on your intestines. He, he, he understood that. He designed it, just for the record. But he understood that. What he, what he means is he's speaking metaphorically, and he's basically saying if your eye lets the light in well, then your whole being, your whole body, will be guided well. All of you will be well directed if you can see clearly. He's saying that our eyes direct our bodies. Our eyes provide the light that directs us. So, he's speaking about how our lives are directed. If you're seeing straight, you'll walk straight. On the other hand, if your eye is sick or unhealthy or bad, you'll be bumping into things all over the place. If your cataracts, grow to the point where everything's foggy and you keep getting into car accidents, it's because your eye is bad and you're being guided poorly. There's all kinds of ethical issues that come up with money. And you might start thinking to yourself, how am I supposed to figure that out? How am I supposed to know what's the right use of money? And Jesus is saying, the first place you need to focus is on your eyesight. You need to ask yourself, how well do I see? And if you see things clearly and spiritually, then you'll be led. Whether you've got five bucks in the bank or five million, you'll be led to make the right decisions about money if you've got good eyesight. Now what exactly is a healthy eye? What makes for a healthy eye? The great Matthew commentator, R.T. France, uh, points out that this word healthy is a trick to translate in English. Uh, it has the idea of generosity and singleness. A healthy eye is a generous eye, looks at situations and doesn't see threats to its wealth, but sees opportunities to minister with its wealth. And then there's actually the idea, uh, it's not just generous, but there's something single about the eye. There's There's a single passion in a healthy eye. It's like an eye looking through the scope of a gun that's got one laser focus, and so it's able to be clear and directed because it's single in its focus. Matthew 6.22 says this. Sorry, in the KJV. The KJV gets this very well. The English translation that served the English-speaking world for 400 years says, If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. So what should a Christian's singular focus be? What's the one thing that if you're focused on all the time, the financial decisions will work themselves out down the line? Well, I think it comes to us at the end of this very section we're in. Many of you have this verse memorized. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. When the Christian's eye is set on the kingdom, when your discernment is what's best for the kingdom, what will build the kingdom, what will advance the kingdom, when your eye is set there, the money decisions work themselves out down the line. When you're kind of like, I'd like to serve a little money, I'd like to serve a little God, let's see how long we can keep this threesome going, you're going to be deranged. You're not going to be able to make good decisions. There's a a need that there be a singular eye. Now George Mueller, uh, George Mueller was a very famous preacher in the 1800s, and he's probably most famous for bringing thousands of orphans under his care and only providing through them through prayer and prayer alone. He didn't uh, request money, he simply asked God for money and God was faithful to bring it to him. And Mueller has some of the best writings I've ever read on discerning the will of God. How do I know what I'm supposed to do with my money? Or, just even more broadly, how am I supposed to know what I'm supposed to do with my life? What's the will of God? Or you could put it another way how do I keep my eye clear? How do I keep myself seeing straight? Because once you're seeing straight, you'll walk straight. And Mueller wrote, what has he got here? Six little points on discerning the will of God. Now listen to them, because they're very helpful. He says, here's how he begins to seek the will of God. I seek at the beginning to get my heart into such a state that it has no will of its own to rega- in regard to a given matter. The first step is absolutely crucifying your own will. He says this, nine-tenths of the trouble with people is just here. Nine-tenths of the difficulties are overcome when our hearts are ready to do the Lord's will, whatever it may be. When one is truly in this state, it is usually but a little way to the knowledge of what his will is. As long as you're holding on, I will give you whatever you want, Lord, as long as I get that vacation. I will give you whatever you want, Lord, as long as I get to dress like this. As long as there's anything that's being held on to that God's not allowed to touch, Oh, God loves to touch sacred cows. Have you found that out yet in your Christian life? He likes to tip them over, knock them down, smash them to pits. Whenever I hear Christians say, I will never, I just go, okay, I'm just gonna watch out. (laughs) Because I know where the Lord's coming for you. The first step is to abandon all self-will. Having done this, this is two, Mueller says, I do not leave the result to feeling or simple impression. If I do so, I will make myself liable to great delusions. So I don't just say, Lord, no will of my own and then just see what kind of wafts across my spirit. Three, I seek the will of the Spirit of God through or in connection with the Word of God. The Spirit and the Word must be combined. If I look to the Spirit alone without the Word, I lay myself open to great delusions also. If the Holy Ghost guides us at all, He will do it according to the Scriptures and never contrary to them. And I love that, even as someone who fully affirms the activity of God's miraculous gifts to this very day, what Mueller is saying is exactly right. He will work according to the Word of God. If God's leading you somewhere where you gotta kinda put your Bible into the bed mattress to deal with what God's leading you to do, it's not God leading you. The Spirit's guidance will never contradict the Spirit's word. Four, he says, next I take into account providential circumstances. These often plainly indicate God's will in connection with his word and Spirit. Many of us don't take into account God's providential circumstances, that is the circumstances he's placed in our life, and we live in a dream world our whole life. God could lead me here, there, God could lead me to be king of England. Not likely. You've got to start with, at some level, where he's actually placed you. Because, of course, the Father works through the Father's providence, Fifth, I ask God in prayer to reveal his will to me aright. No will of my own, Reading my Bible, Lord reveal your will to me. And then he says, thus through prayer to God, the study of the word and reflection, I come to deliberate judgment according to the best of my ability and knowledge, and if my mind is thus at peace and continues so after two or three more petitions, I proceed accordingly. Crucify my own will, I look through the scriptures, pay attention to what God's doing in my life, see what I have peace to do, I pray about it a couple times, and then I do it. Emmanuel, we would do well to help each other cultivate this kind of attitude. If you give up your will completely, then your eye will be clear. If you want to obey the king and advance in his kingdom, your eye will be clear. If you seek him according to his word and pay attention to your circumstances, instead of dreaming about different circumstances, your eye will be clear. If your eye is clear, you will know how much to give and when to give and when to enjoy some of the riches on earth that God has given. Now let me close this point with two illustrations. Uh, One from a Macedonian and the other from an Englishman. Let me just close this point by mentioning two examples for you that show what freedom we can have if we have a clear eye. The first comes from the Macedonian Christians that are mentioned in the book of 2 Corinthians. They were poor. They were very poor. But after seeing a need, they decided they wanted to give just like Jesus had commanded Paul commends them to us saying, this is Paul speaking, 2 Corinthians 8, verse one through four. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. You need to know what's going on in Macedonia, it's amazing. God's grace is all over these people. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed, just don't pass over that sentence. How's your extreme poverty doing? It's overflowing. Paul says, their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part for their gave according to their means. I can testify beyond their means of their own accord. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. These Macedonians did not have a $1,000 emergency fund. They did not have three to six months of income saved. I don't think that they had read anything from current financial advisors at all. They were broke. But with a sensitivity to God's word and aware that others were in greater need, they gave. They had a single eye for the kingdom and they laid up treasures that they will be enjoying forever in heaven. Now the second illustration comes from C.H. Spurgeon. Spurgeon was devoted to the poor. And when you think about Spurgeon being devoted to the poor, think Dickens' novels, because that's where he was ministering, was in the industry, the, the poverty that followed the Industrial Revolution in Great Britain, and Spurgeon's ministering in the midst of all that, ministering to the poor, caring for the poor, starting dozens of ministries for the poor. But he also knew that sometimes you need to use some of your riches so you can keep on giving. On one occasion, Spurgeon was boarding the train, getting into the first class cabin to take a load off. And as he boarded the plane, another preacher saw Spurgeon and said, I will be in third class, taking care of the Lord's funds. Spurgeon, whose clean conscience was always ready with a one-liner, said, and I will be in first class, taking care of the Lord's servant. How do you know when it's time to give even though you're poor? And when it's time to enjoy some of the Lord's riches for you and your own refreshment? You know if you have a good eye. It's not something you legislate. It's something that each Christian grows in as they walk with a clear eye for the kingdom. Spurgeon was in first class so that he could keep giving to the kingdom. The Macedonians were overflowing in their poverty so they could keep giving to the kingdom. A lot of church divisions happen when believers look at each other, can't understand each other's actions, and don't understand that that guy's just giving to the kingdom. And we do well to give each other the grace Jesus gives to us to keep encouraging one another in giving to the kingdom. This brings me to my last point. In order to lay up treasures in heaven with a good eye, you need to have one and only one master. Notice what Jesus says. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus is not saying here you can't have two part-time jobs. Many of you know that you can He's not saying you can't go to school full time and work full time, many of you are aware that you in fact can. Jesus is speaking to a world where slavery was common and he's saying you can't have two masters with complete control over your life. If you do, you won't wind up torn, you will choose one of them over the other. That's important. That's what's being said here. He's not saying it'll be hard. He's saying it's impossible. It can't be done. Over time you will hate one and love the other. Now don't miss this. Jesus makes this very practical. Well, which master should I be worried about? You can't serve God and money. That's where it has to be mutually exclusive. It doesn't mean you can't use money to serve God but it does mean you cannot serve God and money. If you are devoted to money, you will in time, listen to this, hate God, and you will despise him. You will be like Solomon, whose many wives drove him from God, and if you try to serve God in money, your many dollars will drive you from God, or just a few dollars will drive you from God. The poor can serve money as much as the rich, it's hard attitude Jesus is focused on here. Money will drive you from God if you serve it. You will find him to be a threat to your ambitions because sometimes serving him blows your promotions, it cuts into your savings, it cramps your style. His priorities don't seem to have your dream home high on the agenda sometimes. His priorities do not have never offending your boss high on the agenda sometimes. Of course, I'm not saying any Christian should be a bad employee or that Christians can never buy a dream home. I'm just saying the only way we can walk faithfully in our workplaces, in our real estate decisions, in our daily walk, is if we are 100% given to Jesus and we hate and despise the thought of serving money. The person who loves, tries to love money and God is what James describes as the double-minded man. Unstable in all his ways. So I'd like to finish this sermon by giving you one test and one final encouragement. One test and one final encouragement. The test goes like this. Does your giving to the local church, reflect a heart that is laying up treasures in heaven. Now there's certainly giving beyond the local church, but faithful Christianity, as we're going to see, is characterized by a central and first priority giving to the local church. Does your giving to the church, which is at the center of God's plan to build his kingdom, Does your giving to the church reflect a clear eye with a singular attention to what matters? Does your giving to the church reflect the fact that you are serving one master or that you're trying to serve two? Throughout the New Testament, the pattern of God's people is that they use their money to advance the kingdom of God through the church, not exclusively, but primarily. Through the church, the early church gave to the poor. Listen to this verse, Acts 4, we read, as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and bought the proceeds of what was sold and did what with it? Laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Do you see that? The organization of the church, the leaders led by the apostles at the time, the offerings coming to them, it's being distributed through there. It's not just each man doing what's right in his own eyes. There's a central gathering and distribution. It's the same with the giving of Barnabas who went on to be a church leader. It says, Acts 4.36, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. They gave to the church leadership and the money was distributed from there. Now, just can't help making an aside. How important then is it that we continue to be careful in terms of who we appoint to church leadership? and then we pray for the holiness of our elders and deacons. Because we we don't want to blush about the fact that this is the way it was done, but we don't want to lie and forget that there have been many corrupt men who've used this kind of money wrongly. But the answer isn't to erase this part of the Bible, the answer is to ask God to keep our leaders holy and pure and free from the love of money. On top of that, the New Testament was commanded not just to care for deeds of mercy giving it to the church, but the New Testament was taught to provide for their pastors. Paul teaches Timothy, the first century church leader, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. The church was to raise wages for the pastors who watched them and equipped them and led them. Paul says to another local church, Galatians, let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Not only were mercy needs cared for through the church and pastors provided for through the church, but missionaries were sent through the church. The church really was a central place where the gathering of funds to send out missionaries to the nations was gathered. Third John, verse seven and eight, John says, These people have gone out for the sake of the name. They're itinerant preachers. They're missionaries. They're ones who've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. They don't write uh, letters hoping to get their Gentile uncle to give them money to go on a mission trip. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So in all these things, we have the church gathering and giving to mercy, gathering and providing for their pastors, gathering and sending out missionaries. This is the way the church advances the kingdom of God through money. This is the way, one of the ways, the primary way in which we invest in the laying up treasures in heaven. And let me ask you, what does your bank account tell? What does it say? What does it say about your investment in the kingdom of heaven? Are you laying up treasures in the way the New Testament church laid up treasures? And I wanna tell you that I am so encouraged because so many of you are such faithful givers. I'm not going through your names and looking at who's given what, but we know just from the amazing budget growth we've seen over the years and the amazing provision we've seen that so many of you are taking this seriously and are giving joyfully, sacrificially, and regularly to advance the kingdom and to lay up treasures in heaven. And I just want to tell you, when you get to heaven and all of the rewards and treasures are there, all just making the face of Jesus, who's the main treasure, shine brighter, you will not regret having given one penny at all. Those treasures will all be in the right place. It will be more lucrative than any 401k, any passive real estate you've got, anything. It's the best investment in the world. Whether you're a college student giving $10 off of $100 spending money, or you're a professional giving generously of your income, your signing bonus, your year-end bonus, whatever you're giving, the Lord sees the Lord rewards, and on the last day, you will not regret one dime you've given to him. Now, some of you may be slacking in giving. I don't know the reason. Maybe the cares of this life are pressing in on your faith. Maybe you think you don't make enough. Maybe it never seems to be the right time. Or there's always real hardships that get in the way of us giving when we should be or increasing our giving. There's a story that Martin Lloyd-Jones tells that makes this point, I love it. There's a farmer uh, who one day went happily, with great joy in his heart, to report to his wife and the family that their best cow had given birth to twin calves, one red and one white. And he said, you know, I have suddenly had a feeling and impulse that we must dedicate one of these calves to the Lord we will bring them up together and when the time comes, we will sell one and keep the proceeds and we'll sell the other and give the proceeds to the Lord's work. And his wife, as wives often do, take those nice highfalutin ideas and bring them on down to earth. She asked him which he was going to dedicate to the Lord. He said, there's no need to bother about that now. We'll treat them both in the same way. And the time comes, we will do as I say. And off he went. In a few months, the man entered the kitchen looking very miserable and unhappy. When his wife asked him what was troubling him, he answered, I have bad news to give you. The Lord's calf is dead. But she said, you had not decided which one was to be the Lord's calf. Oh yes, he said, I had always decided it was to be the white one. And there's the white one that has died. The Lord's calf is dead. must have been a similar reaction in Westminster Chapel when Lloyd-Jones told that story because he follows it up by saying, we may laugh at that story, but God forbid that we should be laughing at ourselves. It is always the Lord's calf that dies. When money becomes difficult, the first thing we economize on is our contribution to God's work. I used to know a man, I still know him, but I know a man who when money gets short, he writes his tithe on a check he cannot yet cash. And then he saves until he can cash every single check that he wanted to give to the Lord. Let's sure, make sure our master gets all that he deserves, even our very best. We are a group of elders and deacons. We try to dream within the money God has given us, paying attention to God's providence. But beloved, I got dreams, and I'm sure you got dreams for what more we could accomplish through this church. And there's no, and if those dreams are being hindered by many of God's people, not giving all they can, all they should, always skimping on their giving to the Lord instead of other things, what a shame it would be that you are not working for your own joy and laying up treasures that will greet you in heaven. Now let me close by giving you one final encouragement. I want to remind you how pathetic it is to serve money and how wonderful it is to serve the Lord Jesus. You you can't serve two masters. So which one are you going to choose? Money is deceptive, beloved. It's deceptive. It brings a false security when it's your master. In Luke 16, we hear about a man who had so much money, he had to build new barns to keep all of his treasure in. You know what he said to himself? He says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Your 401k is maxed out. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But the Lord said to his soul, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be?" His money had deceived him. Not only is money a deceptive master, money's a demanding master. John D. Rockefeller, the oil and gas tycoon, who you think Elon's rich, Rockefeller's his net worth was a full 1% of the US economy. He was asked once by a reporter, how much money is enough? And he answered, just a little more and that's everyone's attitude towards money when money is their master it's just never enough you can always just have a little more and it's a demanding master and t- unless we are content in Jesus we will always want just a little more and not only is money when it's our master deceptive and demanding it's also disappointing no one ever got to the riches they wanted and thought that was everything I hoped it would be. Jeremiah chapter two says this, my people have committed two evils, God speaking. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out clay pots or underground wells. They have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that could hold no water. That's what money is. It's like a broken cistern that can never actually hold the satisfying, thirst quenching promises it lays out. Money is a deceptive master, a demanding master, a disappointing master, but our master, Jesus, is entirely different. He is true in every fiber of his being and every bone in his soul. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through him. Our master has been speaking generation after generation, and when God's people hear him, and I can say this about my own life, and I'm sure you can say this about yours, every word of God proves true. Our master does not deceive. When he speaks to us about anything, when he speaks to us about money, he speaks the truth. And in one sense, he's not demanding at least not in the sense of he's just coming to us trying to get the most out of us. His burden is easy and his yoke is light. Second Peter describes him as the master who bought us. He's not one who comes to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Romans 14 calls him the master who's able to make us stand. Matthew chapter 6 is going to go on and tell us he's the one who's going to provide for us more lavishly than he provided for Solomon or the lilies of the field. That's our master. That's the one you should serve. And not only is he not deceitful, not only is he not demanding in the wrong sense, but he is not disappointing. Listen to the language Jesus says to those who invest their treasures in heaven. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Emmanuel, let's commit ourselves to him afresh this morning. Let us give ourselves to the one who gave himself for us and for our salvation. Let's show it with our wallets. Let's let's show it with our hearts. And if you've never given yourself to the Lord, let me plead with you to come away from serving stuff, created things, material things that can never satisfy. Return to Jesus, the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Don't let your sin stop you from coming to him. He's the master who died to pay for our sins. Come to him. And for all of eternity, you'll find he is the best master. Of the soul. Father, we come before you, we praise you, we thank you, and we pray that you would help us to make resolves to serve you and then to make good unresolves to serve you, and that we would find you true and we would find you so satisfying as we invest in your kingdom in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.